we come before you this morning and we confess that we don't really understand why you chose us. But we know that you did. We know that in your mercy, you became Jesus on this earth. Part of the triune God, visiting man and dying for man and rising again from the grave, defeating death, you give us hope. Father, I pray that you would assist me this day as I open your word and proclaim your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you would know that this book was written by Paul. We call it a book, but it was actually a letter written to the church in Rome. Um, Paul was a missionary. He had what we typically refer to as three missionary journeys. But prior to that, he spent time um, as a missionary in the, uh, the area of the Middle East. Paul was sent to the Gentiles by Jesus. One thing that makes him very different from most people claiming some sort of authority is that he was called personally by Jesus. Just like the, the previous 12 that Jesus called as his disciples and later proclaimed them apostles. And he was not self-appointed. We can read in Acts where while Paul was blinded, a man by the name of Ananias was visited in a dream by Jesus and was told to go to a particular house and he would find Saul at the time, would find Saul there and to announce to Saul that God was calling him to the Gentiles. And then he goes on to say, and tell him that I will show him the many things that he must suffer for the gospel's sake. Paul was sent. My wife and I are missionaries. We were sent by the PCA. We were sent by churches like this one that support us. We are your missionaries in Latvia. Every missionary you support, you send somewhere. Paul was sent by Jesus. A missionary is anybody sent on a mission. Doesn't have to be religious. Paul uses a lot of words like missionary. Paul uses words that in the context of the time were well understood. Words that we have over the last 2,000 years, we have come to associate them with religious context only. But they are, in fact, Greek words that everybody knew and understood. First, the word apostle. Who is an apostle? 
Um, it's wonderful that we have our cell phones. I, I confess I have mine on me almost all the time. I have my calendar in it. Um, I have my Bibles in it. I have notes in it. Uh, I have a Bible that gives me English and Latvian parallel to each other. And I've always got my phone out during the church service in Latvia with my phone trying to figure out exactly what he's talking about. I have a translator, actually two, in it. Uh, and we can, as the, as the uh, offering plate goes by, we can make a one-time gift with our cell phones. It's wonderful. But Paul didn't have a cell phone. They weren't around at the time of Paul. And so when the king... When Caesar wanted to make an announcement, he had apostles. These were men that were trusted by the king. They would come into the presence of the king and would receive a message. And then they would be scattered along the, around the Roman Empire. And they would repeat this message. Under penalty of death, it had to be what the king actually said. They were the king's mouthpiece. They were the emissary of the king. At the beginning of most of his letters, Paul says, I am an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ. When Jesus appointed apostles, they were men that were in his presence, that heard his word, and then were scattered to proclaim it. Kind of like an emissary but an official one. Paul uses um, this word quite often. And it comes from the Greek word apostolos, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. And we have variations of this word today, of course, apostle, but we have an apostille and an apostolate. These are government uh, offices that authenticate. In the United States, we have an apostille. Every time I go to apply for my visa in Latvia, which is annually, I have to provide certain documents from the United States, and they have to contain an apostille. Now, we have notary publics in the state of Georgia but for a country of Latvia or France or Germany or any other country that signed the Hague Agreement, that's a worthless document. It doesn't mean a thing. So in every state, we have a Department of State of the federal government that it has people in there, and we take those documents to them, and they put an official seal on it and a page attached to it with a special uh, grommet. And this signifies that this is an official document, and I can take it to the immigration office, and they look at it, they open it up, they read what it says, and they believe it. It is a real document. There are 50 of these in the United States. And so anytime that you are dealing with a foreign government, you have to have your document taken there, get this apostille put on it, and um, it goes on. It is an official 
mouthpiece of the government. And that's what Paul was saying. Jesus is king. I am his mouthpiece. Paul also uses words like righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? Now, I looked it up in Merriam-Webster, and it says, acting in accord with divine or moral law. And quite honestly, we as human beings really enjoy taking this word and equating it to our actions. I'll talk a little more on that in just a minute. And then Paul uses the word gospel. Gospel is actually an English translation of the word evangelium. In Latvia, in, in their Bible, every time you see the word um, gospel, it is translated evangelia, very similar to the Greek. But evangelium was what the news was that the apostles brought from the king. It was good news, usually of a battle won, or of a holiday, or some kind of birth of a, a successor. But it was the good news from the mouth of the king. Now, I had originally intended in talking about this to say it's not just good news and then shout out great news. But I've had a cold, I'm a little bit hoarse, and if I do that, I'm liable to start coughing. So um, it is great news. Great news. Jesus used the word. In Matthew, he records where Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God has come. All the disciples preached the gospel of Jesus. But what's good about it? What is the gospel? In Romans, we find in the first seven chapters or so, we find that the gospel is about God's righteousness. God's righteousness. He is not just acting well. He is righteous. Righteous is a state of being. He is righteous. His actions merely show it. The gospel is about our unrighteousness. Most of those chapters, Paul talks about our unrighteousness. He really paints a dark picture. And if you look at the world today, it's very obviously that we are a corrupt people. We are an unrighteous people. And it's not just our actions. Our actions merely declare our unrighteousness. We are in a state of unrighteousness. How can we be made righteous? 
especially if the righteous are, are, are made that way by faith. God reveals it. We are unrighteous. And what makes that great news? Well, in 1974, at the age of 19, I decided that I was ready to get married. I had met a young woman, and um, I thought I had the world by the tail and could conquer anything. And I went down to a place that's still in existence, Jewelers Trade Shop, Pensacola, Florida. And I wanted to buy an engagement ring and a wedding ring, or rings, to present to this young lady. So the jeweler wanted me to look at diamonds. And if you ever go to a jeweler to look at diamonds, they take this sometimes perfect stone, sometimes there are flaws, sometimes their color may be not quite white, but they take it, and in order to show you the brilliance of it, they put it on a piece of black cloth. If I put it on a piece of white paper, you don't really appreciate the brilliance of a diamond. But when you put it on a black backdrop, it jumps out at you. And so Paul, in order to make this good news great news, he paints a really dark picture of mankind. The gospel is that God is righteous, that we are unrighteous, and that God saved us. We are a people today that don't like to hurt feelings. We don't want to hurt anybody's self-esteem. We don't want to make God sound mean. So we tend to declare that we are saved to something or for something. We want to be positive. In Latvia, the word positive gets used so much. You get positive energy from the day. You get positive this and positive that, and they have music concert called Positives. And it's, it's so abused, I don't think they really know what it means. But we want to be positive. So what are we saved from? Some people that's all they want to talk about is what we're saved to. But if you save something, you save it from. If you take money out of your paycheck and put it into a savings account, you're saving it from being spent. Well, when we do mention this, we tend to say things like, well, we're saved from our sin. And that's partially true. We're saved from ourself. Well, if I'm sinful, that's partially true. Paul spends four chapters declaring God's righteousness, our unrighteousness, and then in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, 
How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? We're saved from God's wrath. Do you believe in God's wrath? Before I came up here, somebody asked me this morning, are you going to give me some hellfire and brimstone? And uh, it was kind of ironic because I do want to talk briefly about it, but just very briefly. Yes, there is a wrath to come. If you look in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist was baptizing people on the Jordan River, and a group of Pharisees comes. And they were coming just to see what it was all about. And John looks up to them, and he says, You brood of vipers, who has warned you of the wrath to come? John knew there was a coming wrath. Do you really believe that there's a wrath to come? Sometimes it's easy for us to believe that there's a wrath to come when it's dealing with just ourselves. It's a little, little bit easier to accept. But what about your neighbors? What about your coworkers? What about your family? Do you really believe there's a wrath to come? God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, gives us the faith to believe in His Son. The gospel is God making Him who knew no sin, meaning Jesus, making Him sin on our behalf that we who are enslaved by sin can now become the righteousness of God. Not by what we do or how we do it. Not by what we know or how smart we are. Not by our cleverness or our wit. But solely by the blood of Jesus. I'd like to take a moment and kind of break from this and tell you a story. It's the story of an 11-year-old boy who was at home one day and unexpectedly came a knock on the door. He went to the door and there were soldiers. Little boy's name was Inis. He was a real person. And Inis and his family, his mother, his father, his siblings, were rounded up by these soldiers and taken down to a train station. And in 1941, they were put in a cattle car and sent to Siberia. There were so many people in the cattle car that you couldn't lay down and go to sleep, everybody at the same time. They had to take shifts. There were no toilet facilities. They were occasionally fed. 
And they made the long trip on a train to Siberia. The crime, Inus' father was a successful farmer. He had a large farm. He uh, was very successful. He'd become prosperous because of it. He knew how to farm. He was um, practicing new farming techniques and was very successful. The Soviet government decided that they wanted all the farmland to turn into collective farms. And so they sent Ines and his whole family to Siberia. Fifteen years later, Ines was allowed to return. He was the only one of his family that returned from Siberia. Some died from natural causes, others from the harsh conditions. I was um, living in Latvia. I have friends all over Europe, including in Russia. And I got a, um, uh, a message the other day on the Internet. This One of the guys that I know was saying it was the equivalent of 64 degrees below zero Fahrenheit in Siberia. And these people were sent out there. They had to make their own dwelling places. They had to make their own insulated clothes. <clears throat> they had to scratch a living from the earth. Einis came back. He was very bitter at the Soviet government. He didn't like Russians. Whether or not Einis was taught anything when he was a child from the Bible or while he was in Siberia, I don't know. I do know that there were certain things from the Bible that Einis knew. He knew the Lord's Prayer. He'd been at least taught that. But Einis was a very bitter man. He married, he had children. He had a lot of trouble at work because he refused to join the Communist Party. He was blamed for things that he wasn't even present when it happened. He had a hard time keeping a job. He was constantly watched. He hated the Russians. He hated the Soviets. He hated the Communists. Fast forward. In... 2011, a lady by the name of Christina went to Inis and his wife and asked them if they would be willing to help two Americans learn Latvian. Inis nor his wife, Gita, spoke any English at all. But they were very proud of the country of Latvia, and they were pleased that foreigners were wanting to learn the language, so they agreed. Once a week, Jean would go and meet with Gita. She was a believer. She attended a local church, and they would read Bible stories. They would read children's books on, on Bible stories. They would take the church bulletin and would read from it the Lord's Prayer, 
the Apostles' Creed, things like that. But Aeneas would have nothing to do with it. Aeneas knew that I was a missionary. He didn't have a problem with that. But he was quick to tell me, I find it hard to believe in a God that would allow things to happen that I've seen. Robert and Jean became very good friends with Gita and Aeneas. We had Christmas parties. We had birthday parties. We went out to dinner. We had them in our home. We were in their home. We got to know them very well. Aeneas had a form of cancer, a lymphoma that was making itself known around his eyes. And he would go in for treatment, but there were tumors growing in the fatty areas around his eye, the muscle tissue around his eye. They were keeping it at bay by, by treatment, but it got to the point that we had to stop reading. I failed to mention that while Gita and, nine, Gita and Jane were reading the Bible, uh, Robert and... Aenis read through the entire book of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn in Latvian. He loved Mark Twain. He was a very well-read man. <clears throat> we had to stop reading, but we stayed in touch with them and we communicated regularly with them. One day we found out that Gita had, um, in her 80s, she had contracted some sort of pulmonary disease and died rather suddenly. We went to the funeral. We met up with Gita, with Aenis, and um, I went up, shook his hand, talked to him in Latvian, told him that we were sorry for his loss, and that we'd like to have him over for dinner. And he, he agreed. So about a month later, he contacted us that Things had settled down enough, and he came over for dinner. And as we were sitting around the table after dinner, he said, let's talk about God. And I said, okay, what do you want to know? And he said, tell me everything. So I started in Genesis, and I went to creation, how God had created man perfect, just like him. And how we had fallen to sin and it corrupted the whole world. And how he had sent Jesus to redeem us because of the sin that was natural for us, we were destined for hell. That is the hope of most of this world. That's all they can hope for, is hell. Einis looked at me and he said, I just can't believe that there's a God that would allow the things I've seen to happen. Seventy-five thousand people were taken from Latvia and sent to Siberia. The vast majority never returned. Most of them died there from sickness, from the elements. 
Uh, we agreed to leave it at that. Inees went home. A few months later, we were notified that Inees' cancer had returned with a vigor. He had gone to the doctor, and they had basically sent him home to die. We went to visit Inees. We first called and talked to one of his caregivers. He had family there that was taking care of him. They would take shifts. And uh, he agreed to see us. We went by and saw Inees. And towards the end of our visit, we asked if it would be okay if we read to him from the Bible. And he said, yeah, that'd be okay. So we read the 23rd Psalm to Inees in Latvian. We said our goodbyes and went home. Once a week, we would go back and visit Inees. After two or three trips, we decided we were going to see if it was okay if we sang to him. By this time, the tumors around his eyes were so large that they were completely swollen shut. He was totally blind. His health was failing fast. He could barely get out of bed. But every time we went, he was sitting in a chair waiting on us. I found out later from his caregiver that um, he refused a lot of visitors, but whenever we called asking if we could come, he always said yes to Robert and Jean. We were, we were good friends. So we went and we asked him if we could sing him a song, and he agreed. So we started singing hymns to him in Latvian, hymns like Be Thou My Vision, And after the first time and for the next several weeks as we went and we sang different hymns to him, Inis would want to sing to us. And it was usually a song about drinking beer or about meeting a young woman, things that he remembered from his youth. Um, one of his daughters, who is a believer, was there part of the time, and she would come and listen to us sing. Um, I'll get, I'll get back to her in just a minute. We were getting ready to leave two years ago in January from visiting Inees. We were, we were uh, about to leave. And his caregiver, who at the moment that week was his nephew, came up to us and in broken English told us, he said, last night, in his room, by himself, Inez prayed to Jesus about his eternity. I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. We came back the next week, and we were singing to Inez. He was totally blind. I was sitting knee to knee with him, touching knees. I had his right hand in my hand. And Gene was sitting to his left. His eyes at this point, the tumors were so large, they were sagging. He was pitiful to look at. And we sang, Come thou fount of every blessing in Latvian to him. 
Tune my heart to sing thy praise. And he listened very intently. And while we were singing, he reached out with his left hand and he found Gene's hand. And he squeezed both of our hands through the rest of the song. And when we finished, he smiled and said, I know I'm a child of God. In March, my father died. And we went by to see Inies. We were having to come back to the United States for the funeral. And went by, explained to him what had happened and that we wouldn't be around for several weeks. And Inies, the first thing he asked me was, was your father a Christian? And I assured him that he was. Inies was concerned. His daughter told us that she had never seen a change in a person like she'd seen in her father. He became concerned with others knowing the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves us from God's wrath. We left the next day on a plane, came to the United States. One week to the day, one week to the day that my father died, Ainis died in his sleep. The last words that Ainis said to me as I was leaving that night was, when God comes for me, I won't be angry. Do you believe in the gospel? Do you really believe there's a wrath to come, that it can change lives? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the great news that I tell people. I've seen it change a bitter, unforgiving man into a saint of God. I was talking with his daughter not long after that. We stay in touch with her. And she made the comment, I can't believe that God would send two people from America to save my daddy. And I assured her that we didn't save him. I wasn't even in the room when he prayed. I have there, you can't say that I had anything to do with it. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. It was a work that God did in his, in his heart. I've seen the gospel change me. In the 1970s, early 1970s, if I had gone to a child psychologist, they probably would have branded me a troubled youth. But in 1972, I responded to a gospel message. I've seen the gospel change me. It is the good news, the great news, 
that I tell people that Jesus, part of the triune God, became man. He died an undeserving death. He took my sins upon him and paid my price so I wouldn't have to pay it later. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Make that your great news that you tell people. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for working within us and among us. We thank you that you're in the business of saving people from your wrath, that you're in the business of changing lives of taking broken human beings and making them whole. We ask, Lord, that you would make this the focus of our conversation as we talk to people. The great news that you have shown us. I pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat>